welcome to another episode of Uncharted, the UN Watch podcast. My name is Jillian, and I'm the Morris B. Abram Fellow at UN Watch in Geneva, Switzerland. On October 3rd, 2022, UN Watch hosted a media briefing in New York City ahead of the United Nations Human Rights Council elections. The remarks you will hear on this podcast were originally delivered at the media briefing regarding the eligibility of Venezuela, Sudan, Algeria, and Vietnam to be elected to the Human Rights Council, judging them on their promotion and protection of human rights. Hillel Neuer, Executive Director of UN Watch, took the floor first to present the NGO's annual report. My name is Hillel Neuer. I'm the director of United Nations Watch. We're a human rights group founded nearly 30 years ago, based in Geneva, Switzerland. And I've come in here today together with our two co-sponsors from the Human Rights Foundation and the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights to present our annual report, which is Who Guards the Guardians? are talking about the United Nations Human Rights Council, which is the highest human rights body, a 47-nation body based in Geneva, and it is mandated to protect and uphold human rights to address situations of gross abuses of human rights. And unfortunately, as you may know, too often, some of the world's worst dictators get elected to this body. So the current membership today includes China, Cuba, Venezuela, Qatar, Sudan, Libya, Eritrea, Kazakhstan, Pakistan. These are places that have slavery in Libya. There is very significant slavery in Qatar. Many thousands of migrant workers have died to build the World Cup. In uh, Pakistan, Muslim minorities and Christians are accused of blasphemy and are killed. And in Cuba is a police state where people are trying to protest these past few days and they are crushed. Venezuela is a failed state. And these countries are sitting on the Human Rights Council. Now we have annual elections. And the elections are coming up on October 11th. And we are here to evaluate candidates. Candidates this year include countries that we think are qualified. It doesn't mean that these are great, perfect countries. There are no perfect countries. I grew up in Canada. I live in Switzerland. There are among the better places in the world to live, but there are human rights problems. But nevertheless, if we have to choose countries that will be deciding what human rights are like, and will be deciding which countries to hold to account, this week there's going to be the first attempt ever to pass a resolution on China. It's a weak resolution. There's no commission of inquiry. There's no condemnation. There's no mention of gross abuses. But there's a reference to a recent report, uh, which does call out China to some degree. There's a request that there be a debate in the next session in March on China. It's the beginning of something, and we hope that will work. And the only reason that might work, and that they might pass a resolution on Russia, which for the first time will actually create an independent monitor in Russia, the only reason that that's possible is because the United States is on the council, and because Britain is there, and France, and a few other countries that actually care about human rights. So if we have countries on the council that care about human rights, there is some potential. But sadly, when you have two-thirds, and today two-thirds are non-democracies, the result is that countries to date, China has never once been criticized. 
Russia, up until the Ukraine war, was immune. Pakistan, there's nothing. Saudi Arabia, there's nothing. There's resolutions on a handful of countries, but many of the world's worst dictatorships go scot-free, so it matters who's elected. We think the qualified countries that are running include Belgium, Chile, Costa Rica, Germany, Romania, South Korea. Again, there are problems in all these countries, but we think based on our methodology, which, by the way, there's a debate that some people say that um, why are you demanding that only the virtuous be elected? Shouldn't you have, uh, you know, the Swedish foreign minister, Margot Wallström, a few years ago said, what's the problem with Saudi Arabia on the Women's Rights Commission? What's the problem? I mean, that's where they'll learn. That's where they'll learn about women's rights. They'll come to the Women's Rights Commission and they'll learn. But the truth is that China, Russia, and Cuba have for the past decade been sitting on the Human Rights Council. And did they learn and improve? Or on the contrary, did the Chinese regime only persecute more dissidents? Did Venezuela only throw more judges in prison? Did Putin only invade and trample more countries since they were sitting on the council supposedly there to learn and improve? Again, if there were countries that were moving towards democracy and truly wanted to improve and had imperfect records, we could discuss that. But we don't think there should be dictatorships that have no interest in learning and improving. So, we, we mentioned countries that are, according to our methodology, are qualified. We looked at their human rights record at home. We also looked at how they vote at the United Nations on various resolutions. When there was a resolution on Iran, did they support it for victims of Iran? When there was a resolution on Syria, did they support it? The resolution for uh, the Ukrainian victims and other thematic resolutions, sometimes that are upside down. Did you know there's a regular resolution at the Human Rights Council that deals with, and also at the, at the General Assembly, called unilateral coercive measures. I'll say that again, unilateral coercive measures. And that resolution says that any sanctions against dictatorships are wrong. So if you impose sanctions on Iran, Russia, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, that's wrong, and that's somehow a human rights violation. And these regimes managed to get a whole mechanism created in Geneva and in New York to say that sanctions against dictatorships are a bad thing. So if you voted for yes to that resolution, we took points away from you. You were supposed to vote no. And we concluded that those countries I mentioned before were qualified based on how they treat people at home and how they vote at the UN. There are some countries that we deemed questionable. They have mixed records. These include Bahrain, Bangladesh, Georgia, the Maldives, Morocco, and South Africa. They have mixed records. Then there are countries that are unqualified. They just don't qualify by any measure if you look at how they treat their people at home. One is Afghanistan. You may be asking Afghanistan. Are the Taliban running for the council? Technically, it's the ancien regime. It's the old elected government, which is not a government. They don't control any territory. They decided to throw their hat in the ring. They still represent the country. However, the Taliban have requested credentials, and the UN hasn't decided yet. They said, you know, we're going to suspend the decision. It's pending. So if you vote for the old democratic government, which has no control over the territory, tomorrow the Taliban could get those credentials, and then you'd have the Taliban not only on the Women's Rights Commission, because Afghanistan already has that seat, but they'd be on the Human Rights Council as well. So I, I'm not really sure why the government is running. I think they did it to get some attention for their cause, but I, we do not recommend that you vote for Afghanistan. We're also opposing the election of Algeria, Kyrgyzstan, Sudan, Venezuela, and Vietnam. 
And we're very lucky, we're very fortunate today that we have with us experts on several of these countries. We'll hear from Mutasim Ali. He will speak about Sudan. And Algeria, we have Zineb Ribua. On Venezuela, we have Rodrigo. And on Vietnam, we have Dan. We're going to begin with the country of Venezuela, which is running for the Human Rights Council, and to ask the question whether Venezuela is qualified, whether it's a country that was qualified to uphold the highest standards of human rights, which members are required to do. With us, we have Rodrigo Diamante. He is a Venezuelan human rights activist, director of the human rights NGO Un Mundo Sin Mordaza. He was detained during the 2014 Venezuelan protests as he was targeted by government Sabine agents as the creator of the global campaign SOS Venezuela. Rodrigo, we're honored that you're with us today. Thank you. It's my honor to be here. My name is Rodrigo Diamante and I'm the president of a human rights organization called Mundo Sin Mordaza. In English will be a world without censorship. I'm here today to raise the voice of the millions of Venezuelans who have left the country because of the a regime has created the largest migration crisis in the world right now. I'm here also today to talk in the name of the thousands who have been detained and the hundreds who have been killed and tortured as a state policy by Maduro's regime. And these are not my words. These are the words of the fact-finding mission created by the Human Rights Council. These are the words of the Office of the Prosecutor at the International Criminal Court who has determined so far that crimes against humanity have been committed in Venezuela. And it's impossible to believe that the Human Rights Council doesn't have a norm who automatically revoke the possibility to run for a seat at the Human Rights Council once you have an open investigation, a formal investigation at the International Criminal Court for crimes against humanity. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that you're voting to renovate a fact-finding mission that already determined that the government used the state to persecute, torture, and kill innocent people. And at the same time, you're giving them the opportunity to run to be at the head of the most important body for human rights in the world. It doesn't make any sense. It's like having someone who's being prosecuted for a crime and being part of the jury of the tribunal who is conducting the, the investigation. It doesn't make any sense. So we have to fight against this. We also need to try to think, imagine the message that the victims, the thousands and the millions of Venezuelans that are receiving from the international community. What is the message? The message maybe is that they're laughing at them, that they're laughing at their pain. We cannot tolerate that. We also need to try to think not only on Venezuelan terms, which is the message for the rest of the world and the victims around the world. Which type of recommendation can give the Venezuelan regime to any other country when they have created the largest migration crisis in the world? When they are one of the most famous regimes right now in the world for committing crimes against humanity. The Human Rights Council do, do not have economical sanctions. They have moral sanctions and recommendations. There is a lot of lack of morality in this until there is a norm who prohibit this to happen. As president of Mundo Simordaza, as an activist, and I will continue to fight for this norm to be applied. I know sometimes it's difficult to assess 
which country can be or, or could not be at the Human Rights Council. But once you have an open investigation or investigation going on because of the crimes being committed, there should be automatically impossible to be elected at the Human Rights Council. This is at least what we can do for the victims in Venezuela. This is at least what we can do for the victims around the world, that for them it's almost impossible to find justice inside, inside their countries. Maybe they will never find justice, but at least they believe in the international system. But if the international system turn their backs and laugh at them when they oppose regimes like the Venezuela, the Human, Human Rights Council, they only be in despair because they don't see a future for them and they will not see, or they, they don't think they will find justice one day for the kids who were killed during a protest just because they wanted to have free and fair elections. Thank you, Rodrigo. Uh, we, we need your voice, and uh, I want you to know that UN Watch will continue to be outspoken uh, on Venezuela. We've had the privilege to speak out for so many Venezuelan dissidents to bring their families when Antonio Lodesma was, was being locked up. We had his wife and his daughter come and speak. And uh, when Leopoldo Lopez, we had his wife. And uh, on our board, we have the former president of the UN Security Council, Diego Aria. So Venezuela is very important for us, and we're glad to have you participate, and we hope to stay in touch. Our next speaker on the country of Sudan. It's been a lot in the news in the past couple of years. Who's d'etat, different governments. So important to understand what's going on there. We have an expert from Sudan, Mr. Mutasim Ali. He's a legal advisor with our co-sponsor, the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. He's also a doctor of judicial science student at American University, Washington College of Law. He has over a decade of experience working in NGOs, providing pro bono services to vulnerable communities, primarily refugees and asylum seekers. His current practice focuses on international criminal law, humanitarian and human rights law, Child Protection and Transitional Justice. Mutasim, thank you for coming. Thank you, Hillel. Thank you, uh, UN Watch, for this opportunity. I just want to share um, uh, my colleague Rodrigo's the outrage for even considering countries like Sudan and Venezuela to sit on a Human Rights uh, Council. I would like to just seize this brief opportunity to make a case against the re-election of Sudan to the United Nations Human Rights Council. As mentioned, my name is Mutasim Ali, a Sudanese from Darfur. I'm sure many of you heard about the region Darfur where genocide and uh, atrocities are taking place until today. And I'm a legal advisor at Raoul Warrenberg Center for Human Rights. On October 10th, 2019, the prominent mission of the Republic of Sudan circulated a note to the United Nations General Assembly concerning Sudan's candidacy to the Human Rights Council. The note underscored the role of the Sudan Revolution uh, of December 19, 2018, in increasing, uh, in creating a new reality in the political atmosphere pertaining to establishing, quote, a state of good governance and rule of law and respect of human rights, end of quote. The note further enumerated a list of pledges that the government of Sudan would undertake. Among other things, quote, Sudan will continue its commitment during the transitional period to create a sustainable atmosphere in which to hold free and fair elections leading to a democratic, freely elected government. Here are the reasons we are the United Nations General Assembly members and the international community as a well whole 
Natural News Sudan's Human Rights Council membership. First, on October 25th, 2021, and their enablers staged a military coup to detain political dissidents, including the former Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok and other ministers, limited civic space, and undermined the rule of law and the democratic transition that the people of Sudan have sacrificed for. Second, since the military coup, to date, the de facto authorities continue to use lethal force, including sexual and gender-based violence, to subdue anti-coup protesters. Third, in Darfur, during this year alone, the Sudanese security forces and their allied militias killed hundreds of civilians and thousands of others were displaced. The government of Sudan failed miserably to conduct fair and transparent investigations, let alone hold perpetrators to account. Fourth, just a week ago, the government of Sudan ordered blocking one of the country's major news organizations, the Sudanese newspaper. Moreover, the government of Sudan ordered the seizure of the Sudanese Bar Association headquarter. And following the military coup, leaders of the Sudan today have reinstated many of the Bashir regime's officials to hold their grips on power. The modest progress made by the transitional government towards improving human rights in Sudan now suffers a significant setback after the military coup. The government of Sudan has failed to undertake any of the pledges it made to preserve, promote, and protect human rights. The renewal of Sudan's membership undermines the very purpose this body is meant to serve. The brave men and women of Sudan plead to the international community to hold military leaders to account for violating their internationally recognized human rights. In this brief, I therefore submit that as far as human rights are concerned, Sudan is incompetent to maintain its membership in the Human Rights Council, and Sudan membership could be reconsidered upon the restoration of the democratic transition and adherence to the rule of law. The international community and democratic nations instead must consider targeted sanctions against Sudan's school leaders and their enablers. It is the minimum that the international community can do to support the Sudanese people's quest for freedom, peace, and justice. I thank you. Thank you, Mutasim Ali. Uh, you've given us an important perspective on what's happening in Sudan, both the need for the international community to step up and hold them to account, but also a way forward if they come back to a path of democracy, human rights, and peace. Staying in the African region, our next uh, country of concern is Algeria. It's not talked about very much, I would say insufficiently, in the world of human rights. But it's a, it's been a very problematic country in how it treats its own people, but also how it conducts itself in the region, how it uses its influence, its allies. We have with us an expert, Zineb Ragua, who is research associate and program manager of Hudson Institute's Center for Peace and Security in the Middle East at a time of the Abraham Accords, where there's new hope for Middle East peace. Zineb is someone who's outspoken on North African affairs, on Israeli-Arab relations. She's a writer, an artist. She regularly publishes her work on her website on Substack. She explores contemporary cultural and philosophical issues. And she's someone who's been analyzing Algeria and its relations uh, in the region and with Europe 
and you give us a great perspective. So thank you for being with us. It is an honor to speak before you today to discuss in advance of the General Assembly elections Algeria's application to become a 2023-2025 member of the UN Human Rights Council. Please permit me to focus my remarks on key factors that make Algeria an unfit candidate. First of all, I'd like to give you an overview of Algeria's positions today. As Ukrainians are fighting for their sovereignty against Russian forces, as the Middle East is addressing counterterrorism challenges, as the Iranian people are fighting and protesting against a regime that oppressed them for four decades, Algeria consistently positioned itself as the enemy of freedom, of human rights, national sovereignty, and freedom of expression. Algeria has always sided with Russia and Iran for which the denial of political rights and civil freedom is a rallying cry. In a bipartisan letter addressed to US Secretary Anton Blinken last Thursday, 27 members of the US Congress called for sanctions against Algeria since the Algerian government kept on purchasing Russian arms, which totaled $7 billion last year alone. Second, it is important to note that Algeria's political system has been a military dictatorship since 1962. Political opponents and dissidents are either imprisoned or sent into indefinite exile. In 2021, the Human Rights Watch revealed that Algeria broadened the definition of terrorism in its penal code so that it makes it easier to prosecute nonviolent opponents. Moreover, as a Berber myself, I have exchanged with Berber Kabyles, who are dissidents, who had to flee the country. They confessed that they could hardly reveal their attachment to their Berber identity because, simply out of fear, to stifle any criticism, the Algerian government tortures and kidnaps minorities, denies investigations into Tindouf camps, where Sahrawis are held hostages by the Algerian and Iranian-backed Polisario Front, and even canceled last month the visit of the Special Rapporteur of the UN to Kabylia. Thirdly, the Algerian government has a dismal track record when it comes to combating racism and anti-Semitism. Algeria exhibited exceptional hostility when its neighbor Morocco signed the Abraham Accord and restored diplomatic ties with Israel. Videos of Algerian journalists urging jihad against Moroccans, whom they portrayed as evil Zionists, have surfaced in large numbers. To conclude, for the reasons I have mentioned, the Human Rights Council should reject Algeria's application. As far as preserving human rights and fighting against regressive ideologies are concerned, the upcoming years will be crucial. The UN Human Rights Council should not have a member with a political regime that demands the sacrifice of human lives to stay in power. Thank you very much. We need more voices like your own. You spoke uh, in favor of the Abraham Accords and for peace. Algeria is against peace. Um, you know, unfortunately at the Human Rights Council, a lot of what we report are, is bad news, but I'm happy to share with you good news about 
Well, I'll start with the bad news. The bad news was that Qatar has a new ambassador in Geneva. Her name is Hind Al-Muftah. And she seemed progressive. She's a woman. She wears a hijab. She was one of the first four women on Qatar's Shura Council. So she, she has a PhD. She seems very progressive. It turns out that she's a rabid anti-Semite. She hates gays. She hates France. She hates the West. They're responsible for all the ills in the world. And she calls on God to curse gays. She wants to kill Jews. And she's the ambassador at the Human Rights Council for Qatar in Geneva. And they nominated her to be the head of the UN Forum of Human Rights, Democracy, and the Rule of Law. So we found some of her tweets, which were there to be found. And thankfully, she didn't get the job. So that was something. Uh, but then I was happy to see someone also with a hijab, with a completely opposite approach. Her name is Lubna, I'm forgetting her last name, but she's the deputy ambassador for the United Arab Emirates at the Human Rights Council. And she took the floor a week or two ago, and she spoke in favor of peace. She said, I'm giving this speech on behalf of my country, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, and Israel. And I have to tell you, that doesn't happen very often at the Human Rights Council, that they're bringing people together and helping peace. But it happened two weeks ago in Geneva. It was a very happy moment. And I hope we have more of those, and I'm glad that there are people like you as well. Hopefully we can uh, bring the people to the Middle East together uh, once again. Um, our next speaker is on another region. We move from Africa, North Africa, all the way to uh, East Asia, Vietnam, a country that America knows a lot about, but uh, maybe not paying as much attention today. They're running for the Human Rights Council. We have with us Dan Wong. He's a Vietnamese-born American democracy activist with an important group called Viet Tan. It's been our partner for many years at our annual Geneva Summit for Human Rights, and they bring us courageous people who sat in prison for being human rights activists, people who were persecuted and tortured, and, uh, and we're very proud to stand with you and to give you a platform, whether it's at the United Nations in Geneva or here in New York. He is a spokesperson for Viet Tan, a political movement that is courageous and persecuted in Vietnam. Before becoming a full-time democracy activist, he worked as an investment banker for over 10 years. He has testified before U.S. congressional committees on human rights issues. He's written for the Wall Street Journal, Asia Times Online, and leading Vietnamese language publications. Dan, please, you have the floor. Thank you, Hillel. Thank you, um, UN Watch. Then is very honored to partner with UN Watch um, on the Geneva Summit. We think that's a very important forum to bring forth issues about democracy, human rights, and tolerance. Let me start with the good news. The Socialist Republic of Vietnam wants to join the UN Human Rights Council. That means the Vietnamese government recognizes the importance of at least appearing to respect human rights. And according to their candidacy statement, the Hanoi regime, quotes, believes in the universality of human rights and attaches great importance to the adherence to and implementation of international treaties in protecting and promoting human rights in the country. The bad news is that the reality is quite the opposite in Vietnam. There are hundreds of known political prisoners who have been persecuted simply for exercising their basic human rights. Contrary to international treaties, the Hanoi regime has criminalized free expression and peaceful political advocacy. Blogger Chik Batu is serving an eight-year prison sentence for so-called propaganda against the state. He has been, while in prison, he has been beaten, shackled for days, and put under a solitary confinement for protesting against prison conditions. My colleague, Leiding Leung, a community organizer and member of Viet Thanh, is serving a 20-year prison sentence for attempting to overthrow the state. 
What he actually did was to raise public awareness about the Formosa environmental disaster and the threats to Vietnamese sovereignty from the Chinese Communist Party. I could list many, many more cases which have been well documented by human rights groups or mention the latest efforts by the Hanoi regime to restrict social media uh, from covering the news. The bottom line is that the international community must reject the candidacy of the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. Rogue states that trample on the basic rights of citizens do not belong in the Human Rights Council. The Hanoi regime doesn't seem to recognize that, you know, first of all, human rights matter. People should be able to speak their mind, worship as they wish, and choose their elected representatives. Second, social progress and sustainable development can only be achieved with a respect for worker rights, a free press, and a vibrant civil society. And third, Vietnam has a fundamental interest in upholding the UN Charter and associated covenants. Just as international treaties enshrine universal human rights, international laws also help guarantee the inviolability of national borders, the respect for maritime rights, and the peaceful resolution of disputes among states. So when the Hanoi regime flaunts international human rights, they harm not only the people of Vietnam, but also the interests of the Vietnamese nation and the international community. Thank you for listening to Uncharted, the UN Watch podcast. See you next time.